May 8th, 2011, VGN Radio presents Kevin's Old Blast Radio with your host, Kevin Baird. Tonight's topics, we're going to talk a little bit about old-time game hunting, uh, a little bit about Octane, nuclear meltdown, World War II tank tech will be the larger piece on this, and the oil pipeline, plus a little up-to-date on what's going on with me. So if you've never listened to Kevin's Old Blast Radio before, basically this is a show where I, uh, Kevin, talk a little bit about various topics, uh, usually complicated ones, and or I conduct interviews with uh, friends of the show and people that just want to be a guest on the show in order to talk. I haven't actually done one of these shows where I've been by myself for quite a while. Last show I did was with Vadim, which was back on February 8th. Uh, It was a really good show. Everybody really liked it. And then things got really busy in my life. Uh, One of the reasons I haven't done shows as often is uh, partially because of the fact that uh, Spill, which is, uh, as everyone knows, I do the loading bar on Spill, which is a video game show with Corey Coleman, uh, Jeff, Jason, and Nick. And um, originally that was something that we were doing about once a week, which was, uh, you know, kind of at all hours. It depended on what Corey wanted to do. And sometimes we would record at night, and sometimes we would record uh, during the day, etc. And it would be about once a week, and it was one show. And um, we were consolidating everything together. And then what basically happened was that, uh, you know, he added more people to the show, and then he wanted to basically do it kind of how they're doing the movie reviews there, where we'd break it up and have individual games as uh, each show. And uh, each... Oh, I hear that phone thing. I'm going to fix that. Sorry. Um... And one of the problems we had with that was the fact that the, uh, well, it's not a problem, but that, you know, the game review shows are very long. You know, they ran about an hour. And uh, there's this setup time involved, getting ready and getting organized to do it. And, you know, you could spend two hours recording a one-hour show, and you might do, like, now two or three shows a week, depending on how it, it boiled down. So it was very hard to schedule an old blast show because I just didn't know when I was actually going to get a chance to have some free time. So today I actually decided, well, you know what? Normally we have the VGN call-in show, and I wasn't going to do the call-in show this week because uh, I didn't really get a chance to play too many new games this week. And the the last call-in show was we didn't really get any callers. Uh, You know, we had like one, which was Mr. Kyle, which was a great call, and Javier joined us. It was a good show. It was a good show, but it was just... um, I didn't feel like we needed to do another one right away, so I just kind of said, well, it's probably a good opportunity just to sit in and do an old blast really quick. Uh, the other issue, too, is that the room I'm in right now is really warm. I'm not sure how long I'm going to sit in here. I didn't want to like, commit to doing like a two-hour show in the event that like I wanted to get this done by 9 o'clock and then bust out. Now, a couple other things that have happened. Um, I used to work two days a week at home. I used to work Tuesdays and Thursdays at home. Uh, which enabled me to have a little bit more of a flexible schedule so I could decide when I wanted to record shows like this one. Uh, Maybe I would do one during the day, and then I would work in the evening or vice versa. And it was just, you know, a little bit more time to decide how I was going to do stuff. Uh, But recently at my job, the the guy that was the programming manager uh, left the company. And uh, the boss pulled me in that day, and when, you know, that guy handed in his resignation, and he said, you do you want to be the manager of the company? And I said, okay. Came with a, a nice little raise. And I said, that's fine. Now, it's not, not like the whole company. It's just management of the programming department. And the programming department consists of three people. Myself and uh, two other people. And 
Uh, one of those people are looking at retiring uh, in the next few years. So, um, you know, uh, it's not really a big department to manage. Uh, you know, uh, the other guy is in his mid-50s. He doesn't really need somebody hanging over him either. Everybody's fairly professional in that regard. But we do have a lack of employees. Uh, when I first started, that department used to have about six people in it. And, you know, now it's down to three. So I began a process of uh, hiring. And you'd be surprised. Okay, we were looking for a C-sharp developer. And, uh, you know, we were not looking for anything very specific. You just had to be familiar with web services and uh, ASP.NET and C-sharp. And you needed to know C-sharp. But the rest of it was, um, you know, open-ended. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that virtually, you know, hardly any resumes at all. We did get the, um, the selection of uh, foreign uh, developers who basically needed sponsorship for a green card of some sort. And uh, we got some people in who I felt would not work well in the communication aspects of the company. And foreigners tend to struggle in where I work because they have the language barrier and they're used to having very clean-cut uh, instructions, you know, where they work. And my company is a bit more nuanced in how things are done. So, uh, you know, wanted to find somebody a bit more American, a bit more, you know, or had been here a long time, didn't have to necessarily, you know, be born here, but, you know, understands a lot of the nuances of working in a company like mine. Ended up settling on a guy, for now, uh, one guy that we're going to take a look at, uh, and then in about another week, he's going to be coming up from Virginia, and then probably end up hiring him, and otherwise, not not much in the way of selection at all, and uh, we uh, we put the word out on two big places, so otherwise we'd have to go with headhunters to try to find a guy, and we really want to kind of avoid that because it gets very expensive, um, but the job market for programmers, not bad at all, not bad, in fact, if you're a C-sharp developer, pretty good. I think you can get a job anywhere at this point because everybody's looking to hire C-sharp developers. So, um, yeah, we're going to bring that guy in. Then we're probably going to bring in, like, an entry-level guy a few months later um, to start working on the, um, the stuff that the one lady that's leaving or retiring in a few years uh, to get acclimated and get him in there or whatever involved with that, etc. So uh, that's keeping me very busy, you know? And so playing games uh, to review and then... Uh, doing this, and then, uh, you know, as well as managing my house and everything, so, yeah, man, busy guy, just getting really busy, so, it's all good, though, uh, you know, once the, you know, the hiring gets it done and everything, and I get acclimated to uh, working five days a week again, rather than just the three and the two at home, uh, you know, working at home is easier, because, look, you don't have to get dressed up, you, you know, to go into work, you don't have to go driving in, so you shave a lot of time off, that way, you know, you don't have to pack a lunch, you know, you got the lunch already in your house, and um, it, it was ideal because it offered a lot of concentration, it's quiet here during, you know, the day, there's nothing going on, so no wild parties or anything I'm having, so I was able to sit and code, you know, quietly, now, because I'm in Monday through Friday, it's basically impossible to code, uh, but um, being in a management position, you know, I'm just going to try and uh, keep the the hairiness off of the other programmers that are in there while I uh, try to um, train this new guy when he starts. So, anyway, let's get to the topics at hand. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to touch on was the fact that a lot of you uh, younger guys that have grown up with um, uh, the internet, you know, when it all sort of rolled around around 
around 1995. That's not when the internet got created, but that's when the World Wide Web really started to um, start and really met a uh, met the public eyes around 1997. Uh, Windows 95 did allow you to get on the internet, but you had to uh, install a lot of um, software into the application because it did not have, for instance, the right networking protocols at the time in order to get you to, you know, browse the web. So, uh, you know, you, most people, when they first got introduced to going onto the internet was Windows 98, and, you know, that came out, uh, I don't know if that came out in 97 or what, but anyway, you know, that was around the time uh, when people were really starting to, to hit the net. So, before that, when I was growing up, uh, Don Cease and I, you know, we would hang out. Don and I, um, you know, my early teenage years, um, around like 14, 15, um, we would, uh, you know, hang out at each other's houses. In my house, of course, if you've followed my stories to any great length of time, uh, you know, I grew up fairly poor and uh, didn't really have uh, video games. I did have a Commodore 64, and uh, I paid for that with my own money. I got a job at uh, 15 banking groceries, and I eventually saved up enough money to buy a Commodore 64 and a disk drive. Um, basically, when the Commodore 64 was already, like, on its way out, it was still a very popular home computer system, but, uh, you know, the Commodore 128 was already out, the Amiga computers were already out, a lot of people that were really into computers had moved on to the more, the advanced machines like the Amigas, the Atari STs, and things like that at the time. IBM PCs and such were not really gaming computers back then, um, they didn't have sound, they only had, like, you know, four color graphics or something, they were still business machines, um, you know, IBM tried to have their own, like, PC Junior type home computer for that sort of thing, and that was a big failure for them. Um, but one of the things that was interesting that, you know, uh, I'd like to talk about is the fact that, like, today, you know, being that I'm a game console collector, it's funny because you can find something. Like, if I wanted to uh, find, like, a Vectrex game for the old Vectrex system, uh, I could just go on the Internet and I could do a search for it and I could find it. Now, whether or not I want to buy it today is you know, questionable, but, you know, with any game system that you have today, like a brand new one, like if you have an Xbox 360, basically, you know, every game that you want is available to you. You can go on Amazon.com, you've heard about a game, and you can buy it. You know, it's, they send it to you. Back in the day, that's not how, that's not the case. That's just not how shit worked. I mean, you know, Don Cease, uh, his parents bought him a ColecoVision late in the ColecoVision's life cycle. Uh, because there was a collapse in the gaming market, and uh, a lot of stores just stopped carrying video games. And Don Cease and I went out looking specifically for ColecoVision games. We went to all the stores in, in like our city, which had a lot of stores, and uh, we were only able to find like one, which was Scramble, which is a um, you know a flying bombing game. Oh, hockey started. Look out, Red Wings and Sharks. So, um, we, uh, you know, we bought that game for like 50 bucks or something like that. It wasn't very good. I think Don ended up taking it back. We also had found like some Coleco sports controllers, which were these, you know, controllers that were just, you would play like football or something on, but there was no football game available for it. Uh, there was no other games available for it and there was no way to get them. I mean, there was no internet and, you know, so somebody might be like, well, you could go get a catalog or something, but you wouldn't know if there was a catalog. You didn't know where to get it from. There was no place to look for any of this stuff. There was no 
you know, it was all word of mouth. You might have known somebody that had a ColecoVision. You could be like, hey, you know, can I... And, and sometimes that would happen. Like, there was a game called Smurf, and the guy would be like, yeah, I got Smurf. You know, you can you can borrow this, you know, and be like, cool, well, at least there's an extra game we can play on this. And the same thing happened when Don C's had a Vectrex. His parents bought him a Vectrex, and it had um, the Star Trek game, Clean Sweep, which was like Pac-Man, the football game, which was called Blitz, and it also came built in with Mindstorm, which was like a version of Asteroids. And uh, we went out to the stores, and we went to try and find games for the system, and there were none. We, we did find one that required the color wheel, which <coughs> we didn't have, and was basically useless. We couldn't play it, so we ended up taking it back. Um, and surprisingly, this is like a, you know, this was a symptom of a lot of things, too, when I, like, for instance, had an Atari 2600, which was a huge system at the time, you know, everybody had an Atari 2600, and the, the big problem, though, with the Atari 2600, when I got it, of course, was that it was at the end of the life cycle, and there were a lot of games available for it, but if you wanted a game that, like, was, like, I don't know, one that you remember playing, like, you wanted the Indiana Jones game, or you wanted the, the, the Fire World game... It, it was gone. It wasn't in stores anymore. So I'm like, either you could find somebody that would sell it to you that you know firsthand, or you were screwed. There was no used game stores. I mean, there was n- none of that was going on. I mean, forget it. It was like cartridges and bargain bin baskets and such, and and that was all there was. And that kind of like, so there was kind of like a lull there. And the Commodore 64 was out, you know, still and everything. And then um, we had the. Uh, the arrival of uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System, which came way later, you know, much, much later, uh, you know, years between the two, and uh, the Sega Master System. And I remember going into Toys R Us, and you know, because back then when you wanted to buy video games and that kind of thing, you generally went to a toy store. Now, some, some retail stores did carry video games, like you could go into Sears or you could go into... Um, some sort of a department store and find them. But generally, if you wanted to find all this sort of stuff, you would go to a toy store because they just had everything. And I remember seeing uh, the Nintendo, you know, it was behind glass and it had uh, that Rob the Robot sitting next to it with the light gun and the system. And it was, you know, for the time as a kid, especially out of my family, it was ridiculously too expensive. Uh, You know, I think it was like $200 or something, which, forget it. I mean, it's just out outrageous. And I remember seeing the Sega Master System, which had less games and nobody really talked about it. And it was also like it was like further into the store. It was also behind glass. It looked kind of cooler though, the Sega Master System, because it was black and it had a light gun and it was sleeker and it had, and it took those hue cards, those like little, you know, flat cards as well as a top cartridge. So it had two kinds of cartridges. When you're a kid, you're in your brain, you're like, wow, that's crazy. And then they had, like, the whole 3D thing. Sega was always trying to do, like, crazy shit to, like, make their system, like, stand out against Nintendo. But Nintendo had the best first-party titles, you know. They, they just had, the, you know, Super Mario Brothers, which everybody and their dad wanted to play. So, you know, the system was a huge success, but I was never able to actually afford one at the time because I had a Commodore 64. So, <clears throat> it was just an interesting time period because that kind of brought back, you know, a new uh, revolution in gaming, and you actually started to see, uh, you know, commercials on TV for video games and everything, and people were talking about them, and, uh, but it actually took a while for the Nintendo Entertainment System to kind of grow into its own, because back then, you know, systems lasted a lot longer, and when they did launch initially, the, the uptake was probably, you know, much slower than it is today. I mean, it, it's still very hard to move a new system today. You know, we, we, we see them and they come out and they, uh, they sold like a million in a year or something like that. I mean, back then you would be lucky if you sold a million, 
you know, for a couple of years. I mean, it was just like, not that many people were playing video games, certainly no adults were, you know, it was mostly a kid's thing. You, you had to tweak it and stuff, kids had to keep berating their parents, I want one of these, I, you know, and eventually parents would, would, would give in, but a lot of kids like myself and my friends, like Don C's, he never had a Nintendo Entertainment System, I didn't have a Nintendo Entertainment System, Don Anderson didn't have a Nintendo Entertainment System, um, my brother didn't have a Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, I, I mean, I could pretty much name people off, they just didn't have it, now, that Bill Bailey guy, he had one, okay, so there was a guy that had one, and, and like, um, uh, this friend of ours, Bean, she had one, but, you know, not everybody had one. It's not like today. Like, today, like, you could probably think of all your friends. You could sit in your head, and you could think of everybody you know. And you would be able to figure out, like, what game systems those people own. Because everybody probably has at least one. You know a guy with a Wii. You know you know a guy with a 360. This guy has a PS3. Everybody's got something. But back, back in those days, that's not the case. I mean, some people had them. Some people didn't. And, I don't know. There was also that whole thing, though, where, like computers were, you know, still big, like, there was this whole home computer market that's a little bit different than computers today, because there was so many different kinds of computers, you know, you had Amigas, Texas Instruments, TRS-80s, um, Atari STs, uh, and then you had IBM, Mac, right, and then you had various versions of the two, the Apple II, there was like a GS or something, um, and there was a lot of other ones. I mean, there's Tandys and uh, some people. I actually knew a guy that had an Osborne, and he actually would. An Osborne was like, um, imagine taking like your desktop size, your your tower computer, lay it on its side, okay? So it's like this big rectangular thing, and then put like a black and white monitor in the middle of it. That's the monitor that you would have to use. And they, and like I remember going over there and do, to their house, and they actually had written a version of Donkey Kong themselves on it. Which was terrible, because as you walked up the ladder, like, there was no way to know that you had, like, you, you know, you were not on the ladder anymore, so you could just walk, like, off to the, like, to the top of the screen and stuff. Like, you had to actually move to the left, otherwise it would just think you were still walking up the ladder. But, you know, these guys wrote it themselves on an Osborne, and I thought it was pretty crazy when I was a kid. I was like, wow, you guys can write video games, that's so awesome, you know? And uh, people would get, there'd be all these magazines, like Compute Gazette and stuff like that, and they actually had, like, their own... Um, I don't know how best to describe it. It's like a machine language compiler. And what you would do is you would run it, and in the magazine there would be games, and there would be programs that you could use, and there would be um, lines of numbers, which was basically the code. And uh, you would sit there and you would punch in each number from this magazine. It would be like pages of these numbers. And you would punch these numbers in one after another. It was just a long, tedious thing. I used to do this with a friend of mine because uh, he had one when we were kids. I didn't when I was younger, and I would just sit there and read out the numbers, six, five, three, two, I sounded just like one of those, um, uh, spy, uh, spy radio deals that I talked about earlier, and, um, eventually, you would end up with a game, and you would save it, you wouldn't have to type those in all the time or anything, you would, you know, once you typed it all in, you would save it, but the magazines just wouldn't come with discs, you know, that, that was, like, revolutionary when that happened, like, somebody was like, I got an idea, instead of having people type out the games, why don't we include the disc with the magazine? That was that not how stuff does. And you would think it would be easier back then because, you know, the discs were floppy disks. So, you know, it didn't really weigh anything. You know, you just put it on there, you send it out. But, I don't know, magnetic media back then was very sensitive to a lot of things. Probably wasn't easy to really send out to people. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, basically it was just a totally different thing with with gaming back then. And uh, I don't know, I thought it was fairly interesting to sort of talk about it a little bit because, um, you know, today you can get everything you want uh, if you're willing to pay for it. Back then it was a lot more uh, exploratory. And, And one of the things that's interesting about that, though, is that you were always introduced to something different. Like I had a friend down the street that had an Odyssey 2. And I went over to their house, and they had Odyssey 2 games, and I would play that. And then I had another kid friend that had an Intellivision. And I would go in their house, and they'd have Intellivision. Had that, that, it had a voice on that spoke English and stuff. It was like, Bomb Squad! And it would like it was like, wow, this thing talks, you know? And one guy would have an Atari 2600. One guy had an Atari 5200, which sucked. Um, and it just kind of went that way. I knew a guy that had a VIC-20, and he had a modem. And I was like, wow. And he, the only thing they could connect to was a local hospital with this modem. It was like a terrible old modem on a VIC-20, and they could connect to a hospital, and they could see, like, patient records or something with it. And I, I sat there, and I was like, this is really crazy. I mean, I was really confused by it as a kid. I was young, and I was like, wait, you're connecting this to another computer? Like, what is it? Can you play games on it? And they're like, no, you just you just go, and you can type in messages and stuff. And I was like, I don't... This is alien technology. I have no idea what's going on. So, anyway... Today, everybody's got video games. I mean, they're everywhere. But back in the day, you know, if you went to an arcade or something, you could play a game. You know, a lot of sit-down tables and stuff, Pac-Man, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, they were they were basically on every corner. And I, when I lived in California back in uh, 1988, I had um, uh, a street over from me. There was a convenience store that had Super Mario Brothers and, like, Legendary Wings. Those were like the two games they had. And it was always a line for the Super Mario game. And uh, I couldn't cut through the people's backyards all the time to go over there. So we always had to go up and around the street. And at the very top of the street, uh, this is in Downey, California, there was a, um, a, a little, it's like a little building. It almost looked like a, like a, like a hut because it was so small. And they sold carpet in there. And, um, you know, you go in there, they had some different rolls of carpet, and they eventually started putting in uh, arcade machines. And I guess the, the, the two old people that actually ran it kept seeing the kids walk by to go play this other thing, and they thought, well, we could put in our own arcade games so kids will come in here and play them. But they bought a bunch of old ones like Kickman and stuff like that, so it wasn't like a lot of stuff that really felt like compelled to go in there and play. But if you were really bored, you would. You'd be like, you know, it's raining outside, you just go in there and, you, you know, you, you blow a few quarters, but... I don't know, as a kid, it's not like you have money coming out your ears or anything. You can go play stuff. Maybe some of my friends did, but not me. So, All right, let's move on. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is, and a lot of you guys are smart that listen to this show. I like to give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, but I keep seeing people on TV and in magazines talking about octane and gasoline. And talking about, you know different qualities of gasoline and gasoline being like the higher grades of gasoline being better for your car. And I thought I would just kind of, you know, talk about this for a minute because it's not true. And I wanted to clear up exactly what octane is in case you didn't know. And if you do know, you can skip this part. It's probably only going to be about five minutes long. So just fast forward five minutes unless you're listening live. Welcome live listeners. Appreciate you being here. Octane is basically the flashpoint of the gasoline, the temperature flashpoint of the gasoline, okay? So if you have a higher octane, it means that you it needs a, a higher, like a higher amount of heat before it ignites, right? So if you have lower octane, it takes less heat to ignite. And 
basically that's all there is to it. Now, the reason that there is higher octane is for sports cars, and it's not because it's better gas, okay? It's because a sports car's engine will run very hot. And when it runs hot, if you have a low-octane gas in the car, what will happen? It will cause it to ignite. And that will cause it so basically when you're driving, your car will knock, and if you stop the car, the car will sit there and continue to go kapunk, 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 because the gas is igniting off of the heat of the engine. Or you could have a really old, crappy car that has, like, a problem, like, with heat, you know, getting into the into the engine, you know, into the, whatever it is, the, the piston, and it's causing it to ignite the, the gasoline, and it'll knock and knock and knock until the car cools down enough for the, the car to settle down. That's why you get higher octane because higher octane makes it so that that heat that's in that engine won't ignite the gasoline. Now, what that means is, is that if you have a car that takes 87 octane, okay, and you put 92 octane in it, it makes no difference. Like, your car is going to run the same. It's not going to run better, and it's not going to run worse. If you have a car that needs 92 octane, and you put 87 in it, the car will still work fine. However... This is the only difference. The computer knows in that car that you've put in a lower grade of gasoline. And so it adjusts its uh, cooling, air intake, etc. to handle this, and it actually will give you lower gas mileage in many cases. Basically a trade-off in your own head there. You'd have to figure it out, you know, is the savings that you're getting worth the lower MPG that you're getting by going to a lower octane. But otherwise, it makes no freaking difference. It makes no difference. So, stop putting... I mean, most of you probably aren't doing this anyway, but if you are, stop putting the higher octane in your car thinking that it's giving it a drink of the good stuff, or it's cleaning it out, or it's going to give you more performance, or it's going to be better, or whatever. It's all bullshit. It's not going to do any of that crap. None of it. It's the same shit. Okay? In fact, tell you the truth, the higher octane gas is probably worse because it's probably been sitting in the freaking gas station underground thing a lot longer because a whole lot less people are using it, so it probably has more contaminants in it, so when it gets into your engine, it's going to fuck your car up. So don't use it unless you freaking have a sports car, and if you do, good for you, man. Good, good job, you know? Good that you can have that. But everybody else, it's just the same shit. You know, and don't use any of that fucking fuel injection cleaner bullshit either. That's just going to fuck your car up. All right, let's move on. So, as we know, Fukushima had a nuclear meltdown, and um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what that is, what that means, and um, kind of dispel any kind of myths about um, reactor cores and things. And a lot of times, uh, people have been talking about Chernobyl, and I wanted to take a minute to talk about Chernobyl. I've actually read numerous books on Chernobyl, and uh, the accident that happened at Chernobyl... Uh, it's a little bit weird. It's, it's, it's one of these things that not everybody actually understands the whole story about. And uh, it's... Um, I, I know more details about it than anyone, but there's still actually a lot of mystery about like, what exactly happened that caused the explosion. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you what happens, okay? First of all, let me explain very quickly, because I know most of you guys are smart, um, how a nuclear reactor works, okay? Uh, basically, you have um, a radioactive core, Okay, and it's different reactors are made out of different things. Uh, sometimes they're they're rods, okay, that are 
um, radioactive themselves, and they're uh, in a, in a set pattern in in the um, in water. Okay, and in most cases, this is how it is. Uh, there's some reactors though that use balls. Um, there's some that use uh, uh, probably like you know some other structure or whatever to do it. But generally, it's it's rods, and those rods are hot. Okay, they're crazy, crazy hot because what they're doing is just they're throwing off, um, I think it's neutrons or whatever. I'm not a nuclear scientist, okay? But they're shooting these things off and uh, it's hitting the water and it causes the water to create steam, all right? And it causes the steam to go through the reactor and turns a turbine, steam power, and that generates electricity. It's very simple. Uh, and you have to keep the water going in order to keep the steam going. I think everybody knows how this works. Now, the thing is, okay, is that uh, if you just had the rods in there by themselves, like just the radioactive rods, okay, without the control rods, you just had the radioactive rods, um, the water would just probably, you're talking like the, the temperature of like the surface of the sun or hotter, okay, the water would just like instantly evaporate and uh, you would have to have the water like coming in there like super fast in order to keep it cool because um, there'd be so many neutrons firing off of this thing that it would um, it would just basically the, the 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 water would turn to steam instantly and it would start to burn the rods would start to burn so then what happens is you have these um, these byproducts I'll talk about that in a second now the way they control this reaction is that they lower graphite rods into the um, next to the rods. These are control rods, and, and um, they absorb a lot of these neutrons. Uh, if you put a whole lot of these things into and next to these radioactive rods, they um, will absorb just about all of the new, all of the, I keep saying neutrinos, and I apologize. Um, the, uh, see, I got electrons in my head and all this sort of stuff. There's like, oh, I got all this nuclear stuff in my head. It's just swirling around right now, and I can't talk right. Um, it'll absorb these neutrons, and uh, the um, and the reaction basically stops. This is you know it's off, it's done. Okay, it's still it's still hot though. All right, but you know you gotta have water in there and everything. But it's basically a contained reaction. The water if the water's in there, you know it it will evaporate. But it won't be boiling, it won't be turning to steam and everything because you have enough rods in there that controls the reaction that's going on. Uh, and what they do is that these rods are basically always in there. They don't usually take them out. Um, they just they just um, lift them up so that uh, the the more they raise them, the, the less they control of the reaction. And so the hotter the steam gets, the hotter the water gets, etc., and, um, you know, if they take them all the way out, you've got this massive, you know, steam plume probably. Depends on the water flow and all this sort of stuff. So, what happened at Chernobyl, okay, is that they had about 200 control rods. They had a crap load of control rods to control the reaction. Um, but they were running a test at Chernobyl. And the test was to see if, um, if power was cut, okay... To the um, to the pumps that were pumping water into the system, that if the power was cut before the diesel generators kicked on to pick up the backup power, would enough water continue to flow through the reactor 
you know, from the leftover residual spin of the turbine. You know what I mean? So if the, if, if the turbine's sitting there flushing water through the reactor to keep it cool and power gets cut, the turbine's still going to be spinning and slowing itself down. And then meanwhile, the diesel generators are kicking power on so that then the power turns on and it, and it causes this to, um, to go through. Well, while doing this, they had to, um, they had to disable the emergency um, water... Uh, pumps because the guy that was running it um, felt that you know he wouldn't be able to test this hypothesis because the minute that the power was cut and the turbine started to slow down that the emergency system would kick on and pour all the water in and it wouldn't be able to it wouldn't be able to have a good test um, and so while doing it they um, they had rods in in there just like I said not all two hundred of them okay they had you know been t- they've been taking them out. And uh, they eventually got to a point where they had um, reached to, like, only having 12 control rods inside this, this reactor. And uh, the way this, these Russian, these, well, it was Ukrainian, but it was a Russian reactor, the way these things would work is that they had a, um, a problem with when, when the reaction with the water goes through them, okay, and they create steam, we have bubbles, right? You know, just like boiling water, you have bubbles. And uh, the, for some reason, and again, I'm not a nuclear scientist, but uh, the, the type of reactor this was, with the water going through it, the bubbles would actually um, amplify the reaction in these type of reactors, which is not true of Fukushima, okay? These are more... Di- Chernobyl's reactor was much more dangerous. So what happened was is they took these 12 rods out, and then all of a sudden they basically had a runaway reactor now the thought process was was that what they would do in this in this situation was that they would drop the the other like 200 rods that were sitting above it and push them into the 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 holes or whatever you want to call it there to go next to the other rods and just shut down the reactor except that chernobyl was actually flawed it had a flawed design and the reason it was flawed was because the control rods were not pure graphite. The first, like, foot or whatever, two feet, were, you know, just standard metal or something. They just weren't, it wasn't the right stuff, okay? And what happened is that there's water, okay, on top of this reactor that's runaway reaction. You know, it's it's going crazy. It's, it's just burning this stuff off like steam, okay? And so they lower these 200 rods into this reactor. They're, they start to... But because that two feet of rod is not graphite, what's it doing? It's displacing the water that is there. It's pushing the water away from the reactor. That's the shit keeping it cool, replacing it with the non-graphite, right? And you're talking about something that is incredibly hot. So it doesn't take it more than like a millisecond, okay, to just melt those rods and the holes warp and the whole thing loses, you know, you've moved the water out of there and... This is the part where it gets a little bit weird. Nobody's exactly sure where the hydrogen came from that caused it to explode. One theory goes that there was cladding on the um, on the control rods, which, uh, when melted down, caused it to react. There was another theory that um, <clears throat> the core got so hot that it like it like brought into itself. Um, some foreign matter which then caused it to explode 
not exactly sure about that part. Anyway, boom, big explosion. And these things have like a containment dome. I think it was something like 500 tons, you know, like just really heavy. And it just blew the top straight off the thing, blew out the sides, so that if you were sitting in... Uh, Pripyat, the nearby town, and you were looking out, you could actually see the reactor core burning purple, just sitting there burning. And uh, meanwhile, you were being exposed to massive amounts of freaking radiation because of that. And uh, so that whole design was was completely screwed up. And they had to go in and dump um, lead and boron, which helps to control the reaction. And uh, uh, just keep pouring stuff onto this fire that was there, and tons of tons of people lost their lives over there, and and radiation spread. And you can't go to Pripyat today; it's still blocked off. Radiation's still everywhere out there um, because of it. Now, Fukushima. We don't know all the details about Fukushima, but basically, uh, the reactor there is of a different different design. And what basically happened was that the control rods were. Um, lowered down as far as we know but they uh the water ran out right because the pumping station stopped so the control rods are there but they melted to the core so you have this core that's got the control rods melted to them and the reaction though even if they are melted the the graphite's still there so it's still absorbing the um the the neutrons or whatever so um it's still very hot okay it's still capable of having a big bad fire but it's it's not like chernobyl okay because this is a smaller scale thing so they were able to basically as you saw on tv you know shoot a fire hose in there or whatever dump water on it with a helicopter etc because you know you just had to get water in there and then it would just eventually evaporate and steam off just like it did to the cooling pools you know it, it it'll evaporate and steam off you have to keep the pumps going um and so this would pump radiation into the atmosphere etc so one of the problems that you have is that the um, reactor, uh, the radiation, okay, that comes out of these things, there's different kinds. I'm sure you guys probably may or may not know this about radiation. Radiation's kind of interesting. There's radi- there, there's like there's like four four kinds of main radiation, okay? There's the kind that can penetrate your body, and then there's the kind that can't, okay? Now, the kind that can't, is actually the most lethal kind, but it can't penetrate your it, it like your skin. It you can't even get through it. It's like ah, I can't do anything. It's like bah, because the waves are too dense, and your skin is just like a great barrier for it. It's like nope, you can't get through. But if it gets into your food, or you breathe it in, or you eat it, it's going to sit in your body forever, being radioactive, and it's going to mess your cells up and. What happens in your body is a little bit weird because, um, for instance, your uh, you know you, you hear about potassium. People are like, "Oh, I gotta get potassium." Well, well, the reason people take potassium isn't because potassium is some sort of cure for uh, the radiation that's in your system. It's that your body thinks that the um, the radiation that you've eaten is actually good for it. It thinks it's potassium, and so it takes it and it's like, "Oh, I know where this goes. It goes to your thyroid gland." And it takes it all the way up to your body, and it sticks the radiation on your thyroid gland, where it cooks it. And that's when you get thyroid cancer. Yay! So that's why you end up having to take these potassium tablets, because you're trying to, you know, block it from actually, you know, your body actually putting it onto your thyroid gland. 
And so you'll actually pass it, hopefully, out of your system because your body thinks it's potassium. And it's like, well, we got too much potassium here. Let's go to the bathroom. And you get rid of it. Now, there is, of course, other radiation, which is highly radioactive, that does travel through your body, like x-rays. And um, those will uh, cook you and basically damage your cells because um, the... Neutrons or whatever, neutrinos or whatever the heck they are, are firing off and they're basically hitting your cells and they're damaging them. But it's like getting hit by a bullet, okay, moving at like the speed of light at a very tiny, tiny fraction, but you're getting hit with a machine gun over and over again. So your body is slowly being pulverized by these things, but you can't see it initially. So you can kind of go in for a minute and walk around and be like, well, I don't, I see radiation, everything's fine. But then like a little while later, once all your cells have fallen apart and your body has kind of wasted away with radiation sickness, that's when you start to go to the bathroom and you start pooping out blood and your body falls apart and it can't keep up with all the damage that it has and then eventually you just die. So, though they do have treatments for radiation sickness, it's not a, it's not necessarily a death. They give you a blood transfusion to try to clean your blood out to get, you know, they try to basically fight against it. It depends on how many, how much radiation you actually have taken in. So, in a lot of ways, you know, the, another thing that's that's fairly good about it, okay, is that a lot of that bad radiation that does that sort of stuff has a very short life cycle, okay? It basically, you know, they call it half-life and all this sort of stuff, but, you know, essentially about a week later, most of that radiation dissipates, it goes away. It's only the long-term stuff. When they start talking about, like, plutonium, the type of, like, radiation that sits around for, like, 50,000 years before it hits its half-life, or sometimes even longer, um, polonium and everything like that, that's the stuff that, like, when they start talking about getting into the food chain, that's a big problem, because, again, you eat it, it sticks to your freaking thyroid gland, you get thyroid cancer, and you die. Um, but all, you know, probably not going to impact anybody in the United States because those elements are also very heavy elements. They don't carry in the wind very well. So they're not going to be the ones that sort of float over here, uh, in general and land, you know, in the United States anywhere from that reactor. People in Japan, however, have a bigger problem because, uh, you know, they can exist and persist for forever and be in the sand, the dust in the air and everything over there and, and really screw them up. Um, luckily though, they haven't had a runaway reaction like they had at Chernobyl, so it's not the same sort of reactor problem. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, the biggest problem they had have had over there is the fact that the, um, the, the system that they had, uh, was faulty. It's really interesting, you know, the, the Japanese, because you would think that nuclear safety would be you know, much more serious, but it... I think what it all came down to the fact was that um, the, uh, and we'll probably find this all out eventually, but uh, the diesel generators were out of gas. Like, they didn't have fuel in the, they hadn't run them in so long, they just didn't have fuel in the back of uh, um, generators to, to power these things, to, to power the pumps. And, um, and then they just had a lot of miscommunication and things to get things going before it got too late. I don't know why the one reactor exploded, um, Again, and it, uh, that was a hydrogen explosion, uh, you know, and writers just don't, they don't, as far as I understand it, they don't generate hydrogen. I mean, it could be a byproduct of the boiling of the water and everything, but, you know, the other reactors didn't have that issue. There's some kind of weird thing that goes on with these burning cores that people don't quite talk about that uh, creates hydrogen in the air and causes these things to explode. And that, that is something I don't think they talk about too much 
because it's a real freaking problem with uh, nuclear safety all around to every nuclear power plant. Because why? Because all nuclear power plants today sit inside a protective um, shell, just like the one that was at Chernobyl that was like 500 tons, that cap that was on there. Um, we have a reactor near Cleveland. Uh, we have a few of them. And uh, one of them uh, had an um, uh, acid leak that was uh, discovered by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission or whatever it is in the United States. And uh, they had found that um, it had eaten through all the way to the protective dome that was on top of the reactor. Could, and luckily the dome top was made out of stainless steel, which the acid was not able to eat through. And they took huge fines over this. They had to fix this whole thing, etc. But anyway, those domes exist today. And the problem is, is that if the reactor core is basically proven to generate this sort of hydrogen gas when it's having an incident, then... You know what are you talking about? You're talking about that the that the protective uh, dome over this thing that's basically there to protect it from a fire. You know to make sure all the gas and fumes and everything doesn't get out. Uh, basically becomes a big bomb once those fumes generate in there and then it explodes. Uh, so I don't know. It's you know one of those things that um, I'm sure people will look into and stuff and we'll never hear about it because they'll probably sweep it up and un, you know cover it up underneath the. Uh, you know, a bunch of paperwork and stuff, and be like, oh no, it's safe, etc. I don't know. I mean, for the most part, though, nuclear power is safe. The, the, the biggest problem, of course, is that you have to keep water going over it. Uh, in terms of you getting exposed to radiation from it, you know, you have incidents like this, it's pretty bad. I think what they ought to do is they ought to come up with a way to handle incidents like this. Like, you should come up with a task force or a system that basically goes in and says, um, okay, we've got a you know, an exposed core, it's burning, um, let's go in, you know, with this, um, I don't know, you build like a bunch of robots with a whole bunch of concrete or something. I mean, you you got to build like some sort of system that can take these things out before they, they run away. Uh, a couple of quick other notes. Um, you know, you hear a lot about Three Mile Island. Three Mile Island didn't leak any radio radiation into the atmosphere. Um, it had a partial meltdown. I believe the control rods uh, partially melted into the um, into the reactor, but uh, that was you know that really freaked people out because you know there was an incident there, and most of it though was most of the freakout was because the 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 power company at the time that was running the reactor really felt like the public didn't need to know what the hell was going on, and so they would they handled it very poorly when people were asking about it, and it caused the press and everything to think that, oh, they're hiding all this stuff, and we could all be being exposed, and everybody thought they were going to die, and, you know, and you have all of those years of nuclear bombs and everything going off, sort of thinking, oh my god, this thing's going to explode and kill people and stuff, you know, the knowledge wasn't that great, but by and large, Three Mile Island wasn't a big deal. There was also out in Idaho Falls, uh, there was an experiment that happened in the United States where uh, they were trying to come up with a way to control a smaller reactor with one control rod, and uh, it was being worked on by three um, three guys. I think they were in the, they were in the, um, the Air Force. Uh, may have been in the Navy. I'm not sure. It depends on... The, that kind of thing is a little bit weird when it comes to um, who owns the nuclear technology because the Navy always has it, but, like, the Air Force has two, and it's really weird. Like, for instance, World War II, right? We dropped two bombs on um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, okay? The United States did. And you would think, you would think that, well, that was the Air Force that did it. Ah, it was actually the Navy that armed the bombs. On both planes, 
there was a Navy man on board who actually went back to the back of the plane and armed the bombs. Because nuclear bombs? Controlled by the Navy. So, I don't know exactly. But anyway, at Idaho Falls, the um, uh, one of the guys uh, decided that he was going to commit suicide by having a nuclear meltdown. True story. And uh, instead of raising the control rod a little bit to start the reaction, he basically pulled it all the way out. Instantaneously caused an explosion, blew the one guy up into the roof where he got gored onto the ceiling and got hung there, uh, blasted the other two guys with massive radiation where they died. And uh, they're dead today, and they're sitting in uh, lead-lined coffins, uh, wherever the heck they buried them at. And um, it's like totally off-limits and that kind of thing. You know, you can't go, not like you're going to go digging in graves or anything, but um, they actually had to rip them out uh, not that long ago and like reseal them up because they were worried about radiation leakage from their bodies. That's how fucked up it was. It actually took them like a week to get the, the guys out of there. They had to use like a special crane and everything to get them out. So um, they decided that they would never try to make a, um, a nuclear reaction happen again with one control rod. Um, you know, but basically it, the, the reason it happened was is because one guy just decided that um, it, he had had enough. And, <laughs> just, you know, wouldn't want to be friends with that guy. Be like uh, at your job and stuff. Hey, Steve, how's it going today? Yeah. It's all right. Not really feeling too good. Oh yeah, all right. Are you gonna pull that control rod out? Cause I, I, I want to get this done so we can go to lunch. Um. Yeah. Okay. You know. I mean. Fuck that. You know. Have some kind of like psychological evaluation and stuff. But there, that time period was a little bit weird because everybody was kind of trying to make like um, bombs and trying to control like who had it, like the army, the Navy, like I was just talking, the Air Force and all this sort of stuff. Like the Navy was always trying to like keep control of the nuclear bombs after World War II. Um, they had gone into this big whole thing where they were going to build like a super large aircraft carrier, much bigger than anything you've ever seen today. It was called the USS, it was like the USS America or the USS United States. I think it was the USS United States. And um, there were boats later called USS United States. If you ever looked this up, it, it the way you'll be able to find out about it is it was a canceled program. They, the Navy had actually laid the keel down, um, but... Uh, the Air Force had petitioned very aggressively to get it canceled, even though it was approved. They later actually canceled it. That kind of thing never happens today. Nobody ever cancels anything in the military, but back then they did um, because it was just decided that the Navy was the wrong. It was. It was. It was actually felt after World War II that the Navy, the U.S. Navy, was not needed anymore. That um, everything would be done by the Air Force in the future. You, you just didn't need a Navy. What would you need a Navy for? If you wanted to deliver troops, you could fly them in. If you wanted to drop bombs, you drop bombs. You wanted to, you know, lay a nuclear missile down, you lay a nuclear missile down. The Navy was very slow. It was lethargic. It didn't have any sort of operational, you know, efficiencies that would make war fast. And uh, they decided that, you know, a Navy was very um, unimportant and so that the future of nuclear weapons, et cetera, would go to the Air Force because they would be able to control it better and, you know, be able to deliver it because the Navy eventually would be nothing but a bunch of, um, uh, you know, Coast Guard vessels and that sort of thing. That turned out to be completely untrue, um, but that's just the way it was, it was thought at the time. Okay, all right. Uh, actually, yeah, uh, in the chat room. I, hi, Red Troll, how are you? Welcome. Um, I see all you guys in there. Matt Curtis, Gen 256, Moltra, Sega Man Zero, Twisted Repair, a couple of guests. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Uh, the bodies did not decay, actually. They, uh, the radiation uh, prevented that from happening. So they, um, they are, uh, as far as I know, they're probably still preserved today. So, um, yep. 
that's what happened. Okay, so let's move on. I wanted to talk about uh, World War II a little bit. Um, I kept talking in the past about it. I wanted to keep bringing it up. I tried to get a guy from Australia on. That didn't work out. Um, I wanted to talk um, a little bit about the difference between, um, you know, why, for instance, Nazi Germany um, was very successful in what they did the early stages of the war versus the other countries at the time. Uh, that being uh, the British, French, and the Russians. The main reason was their tactics, but it was also their technology. They realized in the early advent of the war that their tanks were very important. In the United States at the time, okay, we didn't really have much of a military. Uh, we had actually said, hey, the war, World War One's over. We're not going to fight another war like that, you know. So we're not really going to invest in, like, much of anything. And uh, our whole military had, like, a big, like, uh, mothballing, taken down. We weren't really working on tanks or anything. It was kind of like, woo, we're not going to do anything, you know. It's peacetime. Let's party. Woo. And um, a lot of this uh, was the same in other countries. Britain didn't really have a very good tank program after the war. France actually was working on some stuff, but wasn't very good. Um, and uh, the Russians didn't really have much of anything. A lot of it was like armored cars. I mean, you would put like a gun on a car with some armament, and uh, that would be their idea of a tank. And the Germans kind of sat there and said to themselves, you know, look, um, you know, we need to basically use this new strategy of driving into the enemy's territory as rapidly as possible, and uh, having a, a good force of, of guns and blowing them up. And, and the Nazis used the strategy of um, paratroopers, right? Which was basically new. I mean, I think maybe in World War One you had a couple of guys bailing out with a parachute. But the Nazis said, okay, we'll fly over and we'll just drop a bunch of guys in with parachutes. Okay, they'll never know what the hell happened because it'll just be all these guys flying through the air, landing in their zones. And then we'll rush in with tanks. And that was called the Blitzkrieg. And it was very effective. Okay? And, but their tank technology was really good. Like, much better than anything anybody had, and much better than anybody basically had throughout most of the war. Now, to put it into some sort of an example for you, the... Okay, first of all, Germans had what they call panzers. Okay? And panzer... In, you know, roughly translated, is armor. Okay? Panzer means armor. Doesn't mean panther, like a lot of people think. There was a German tank called a panther, but panzer means armor. Now, why wasn't the English and the Americans armor called armor? Because it was codename a tank. Because it was just a, that was a codename for it, because they were trying to hide it. So they made it sound like they were working on, like, um, like a tanker or a fuel tank or something. So... So people, so the at the time of World War One or whatever, when they were first making these things, they said, "Oh, well, it's you know they're they're working on a tank," but in reality, it was their mobile armor. But the name stuck, and that's how come we call them tanks today. But in Germany, they still call them armor, which basically makes more sense than calling them a freaking tank. So <laughs> the Panzers had very good guns on them, and they had very good armor. In the beginning stages of the war. Um, the biggest problems you had with these things was not that they actually got blown up. 
The biggest problem you had is that all of these things ran on crappy engines. Engine technology wasn't the greatest back then, and you're moving this heavy piece of metal with, you know, all this armament, five guys or whatever it is inside, and um, you're trying, you know, you're driving it through the harshest conditions, all weather and everything, and you have these terrible engines. They're not like engines we had today, okay? And basically, if you got it hit, you know, just imagine your car. Just that you have your car, okay, and it takes like a bullet, like the, to the to the to the engine, okay. The bullet's going to travel in. It's going to hit probably a like a like a hose or um, some sort of manifold or something, or a piece of plastic, and it's going to crack, and then your car's just going to break down. Stall. It's going to be out of gas. Same was true for tanks at the time. If your tank got hit nine times out of ten, it wasn't lit up and everybody died. It was that the engine just went kaput. Because it just, you know, there was so much stress on the engine. And at the end of battles, most of the time they would do is they would just, like, haul all their tanks back and try working on them again to get them going again. Because that's, that's basically how tank battles kind of worked out. So, the Germans um, had much better tanks. And the British were, you know, in Africa, fighting against um, Rommel's forces and the Italians as well, uh, who were driving across from Tunisia through Libya and uh, were into Egypt. And, you know, they were worried that they were going to get the um, the canal and all that sort of stuff and, and cut off all of that support that they got from India, etc., um, that, the, that the English needed. So the English came to the United States and they said to the United States, listen, our tanks can't do shit against... Rommel's forces. We need you guys to make a tank. And we said, okay, great. We're going to go ahead and we're going to make the Sherman tank. But, listen, uh, that's going to take a really long freaking time. Uh, you know, we, you know, we got to design plans. We got to build stuff. And the British were like, look, I, look, we, we don't have that long. You know, we're in a war. We got to have something today. Have something today. So they actually built a tank called the M3. And the M3... Uh, there was two styles of it. There was the M3 Lee and the M3 Grant. And basically they were the same thing. One was controlled by the American forces that landed in Africa, and one was controlled by the British forces that were already in Africa. And the M3 Lee was kind of a weird thing. It had a, um, your, a, a small gun at the top, just like a regular tank, okay? But the big gun, okay, was um, had a sponson mount on the side of the tank, and it had a very limited traverse. It couldn't turn or anything. It basically, the tank was facing forward, and it would fire from, from that position only. I mean, it could move a little bit to the left or right, but very little. And um, it, was, it was bolted together. It was kind of big. It, was, it, it had a high profile, so it was a good target. But it did actually tear into the German tanks really well. And Rommel had remarked that the Americans, these tanks that were coming in were um, really good. And, you know, it was tearing into their lines. But, okay. So, the Germans had a anti-aircraft gun, which was an 8.8 um, centimeter gun. Okay, it's called an 88. And this is a big gun. Okay, that they would use to shoot down planes with. It had like a big shell in it. And uh, Rommel and his forces realized uh, that if they lowered this cannon 
and fired at tanks with it, it would be able to knock tanks out at a further range than those tanks could ever come at them with. And it would, um, you know, it, no tank could withstand a hit from the blast of this thing. It was just tremendous. So Rommel would actually put all of these things into a, uh, you know, into a position, these 88 guns, and he would have like a dozen of them or more all in like, you know, position. And the American and the British tanks would just get their asses handed to them because these things would just tear them apart. So ultimately... The Air Force had to dominate the skies over Africa in order to knock these 88s out and cause the Germans to start to flee. Now, while this campaign was going on, Hitler decided that he would also attack Russia. And the Russians um, basically, you know, were completely surprised or feigned surprise. They were not ready for the German attack. And the Germans just, you know, captured an unbelievable amount of prisoners, and their tank technology was superior to everything that the Russians had right away. But what the Germans didn't know was that the Russians were actually working on a tank, which was the T-34. And the T-34 didn't have the most powerful gun on it, okay, but it had a new technology which they call sloped armor. And all sloped armor is is that if you take a piece of armor that's one inch, one inch thick, Okay, and you just hold it up straight, like so it's flat, and a bullet or a shell hits it head on. Okay, that's one inch of armor. But if you take it and you slope it so it's so it's diagonal, right? Then when the same shell hits it, that armor going straight across is now fifty percent longer. So it's just by tilting the armor, you've made it fifty percent longer. So it's an inch and a half thick, and also. Obviously, sloped armor will cause a shell to bounce off of it a little bit easier. So this was revolutionary at the time because you could have um, better armor for the for less weight, and this was a really great tank. And the Russians were able to churn these things out like crazy, and the Germans were like, "Wow, this is this is really screwed up because you know our Panzer tanks are not as armored and as equipped to deal with this." you know, this T-34 tank, um, we're getting our ass handed to us. So the Nazi high command had been working on a new idea taken from the 88 millimeter guns that they had in, in Africa. They said, what if we take that 88 millimeter gun, that same stationary anti-aircraft super weapon, and we put treads on it and put it in some armor and they made the armor five inches thick Okay, and it was just basically impenetrable armor, and that was called the Tiger Tank. And the Tiger Tank had this gigantic gun on it, and it was, you know, from the front, it, you could not, it doesn't matter what you hit it with, man. The, the armor was so thick, you just couldn't penetrate it. So Hitler was like, woo, we got this T, or we got this Tiger Tank, that T 34 is going to get its ass handed to it. Now, this was basically true. Uh, the Tiger tank was a fearsome weapon. It was able to just destroy everything that it met on the battlefield. It had a longer range. It could punch through everything. But here's the problem. On the Russian front, the T-34 was in much greater supply. It was just churned out like crazy, 
and they had uh, you know a superiority of three to one to whatever the Germans could come up with. And the Germans were also fighting on the Western Front against the Americans at that time, who had landed with the Sherman tank. Now the Sherman tank was a pretty weak freaking tank. Okay, they used to call them like. Um, uh, lighters or something, or coffins, or, because basically, they, as soon as they got hit, they would just explode at first because the ammunition and the fuel wasn't in the right place. They eventually had to like rework the tank. But again, the Sherman was made in good old Detroit, and they just churned those things out like crazy. So if you were a German inside a Tiger tank, okay, you might be sitting there with your like your other like group of five Tiger tanks sitting there. And Americans would be coming, and they would be coming with, like, 50 or 60 tanks driving towards you. And, man, the Tigers would do a great job knocking a lot of those things out, but eventually the Shermans would just get around and blow, blow those Tigers to bits. And the Germans had a very hard time trying to replace those, while meanwhile the Americans were just churning these things out like crazy. Same with the Russians in the T-34s. So, the tank technology was really good, and it managed to slow people down, but it wasn't that great. Now, one of the things that was the bigger problem, other than, you know, having these sort of blitzkrieg things where we would run, like, 50 tanks at them in order to try to get around and so you could destroy, like, one or two of theirs, was the fact that what we would really end up doing is, is we would have spotter planes and artillery, and we would sit there and say, oh, well, there's a, t there's a Tiger tank, uh, we'd call in a rocket plane, and we had these planes that basically just fired rockets, uh, at the top of these tanks where the armor was weakest and we would blow them up that way and so the Nazis would hide their tanks in the woods and, and uh, they would have really big battles in forests um, the Hergen Forest, when trumpets fade we talk about that sometime is about uh, the Allies trying to take German positions in the woods when they have these sort of tanks firing at them because the guns are so damn big, you know, it's basically impossible to take them now at some point, okay, Hitler loses his freaking marbles and decides that, well, hey, um, this tank, this Tiger tank's not good enough, uh, even though it really kind of was. Uh, he's like, I'm going to make an even bigger tank. And he made the King Tiger. And the King Tiger was insanely big. It was a huge tank. It was just awkward and weird. And <laughs> it had a giant gun on it and everything. And I suppose if you were facing it, you know, in battle, it would be like... Uh, you know, scary, okay, but they didn't make that many of them, and it was just kind of like, I don't know, it was really strange, it was just too large of a weapon, but the Nazis did develop the best tank of the war, which was called the Panther tank, and the Panther tank took a lot of lessons learned from the T-34, it had sloped armor, but it had a really good gun on it, even better than the 88, because it was a smaller gun, but it had a higher velocity of fire, so because it moved so, you know, because the shell moved so fast, it could penetrate anything that it hit. And it was lighter, and it was just great. It was just a great tank. And if the Allies got a hold of one, or the Russians got a hold of one, we would actually just use it. We would just remark it and use it ourselves, because it was really well built. Problem is, by the end of the war, they couldn't build the things great enough numbers that they would matter. But if you were up against one, they were very formidable. So, this is one of the reasons why the Allies had such a hard time, um moving across the country and, and fighting against the Germans because these tanks were just so supremely powerful. Uh, you can't say the same for their, the, um, the German Air Force. German Air Force was good, 
but it didn't have the sort of um, resources that the American Air Force had. The American Air Force was outstanding. Russian Air Force was not that good. Um, but the American Air Force was outstanding, as was the British. Okay, I, I guess I'm talking technology, but the British, of course, were you know, aces high, the best that there was in terms of um, fighting against the Germans. Uh, the Germans had some interesting strategies, like with the Stuka dive, bomb, dive bomber, but by late in the war, even though they had jet technology then and everything, uh, it just wasn't enough. So once they had air power, you know, the, the Germans were whipped. But it just took so long because you had to just, you know, you move like a mile up the road and then you'd see like, oh, there's a Tiger tank, it's hidden in a barn. You know, and basically you would, you know, if you were the commander, you would be like, well, we're not going to send a bunch of tanks in to try and fight this thing because you don't, you know, you're going to wipe out your whole tank regiment trying to take one stupid tank. You would just call in on the radio and you would be like, you know, uh, there's a, you know, here's the coordinates, you know, can I get a, you know, a bombardment or can I get a, a rocket plane or something, you know, to come in and, and then they would, they would blow it up. It just sort of depended you know, when you're talking about these slow moves like that, that's what they would do. When you had large moves like Battle of the Bulge and that kind of thing, where the Germans would um, mobilize like a large number of units, um, then it was, a, it was it was a different story. But they did that under the cover of like bad weather. Um, one of the reasons the Allies were able to land in France and make a beachhead was because of the fact that um, the Nazi high command, Hitler basically, had the stupid idea to keep the reserve force of tanks uh, closer to Paris rather than near the shoreline, so that when the landing happened, uh, they would try to drive the tanks forward to meet them, and basically, you know, they just carpet bombed them constantly on the road, you know, just bombed them until what was left was just nothing uh, that could put up against, you know, the Allies' forces, and that Hitler actually had to go to the Eastern Front and pull a bunch of uh, SS, Waffen-SS, over to fight the um, the Allies, uh, which, you know, was why the Allies had such a fucking hard time, because, you know, the Americans weren't really, you know, war was fairly new. I mean, you know, we had fought in Africa and, and stuff, and the British had been, you know, dealing with self-defense and little missions and things like that, but for the most part, you know, long battles of war was new to us. Meanwhile, the Germans had been fighting war non-stop since 1938. You know, here it's 1942, you got four years, you got crack troops who are just used to it, coming over and just handing, you know, handing us a very difficult time. But anyway, I just want to talk a little about, little bit about those, the, the tanks. Uh, the Americans eventually did have a really cool tank, which was called the Pershing. Came late in the war, had probably one of the best tanks that were actually used in the war. Um, but it was used so late in the war, it didn't really matter too much. But if it ran up against like a Tiger II or a Tiger tank, it would completely knock it the fuck out because it just had a great gun on it and everything. Pershings were actually used a little bit in uh, the Korean War, and um, but they had sort of an odd shape about them. They had like a, you know, there was sort of one of those things where they sort of sped it up and they put the wrong top on it and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, so that's World War II tech. Uh, lastly, I wanted to talk about um, uh, there's a nice guy on uh, Facebook that I'm friends with, and um, I won't mention his name, but uh, he had a buddy on there talking after Osama bin Laden uh, got killed and everything, that um, that now that work has been done on the quote-unquote Afghanistan oil pipeline, that um, you know this is all part of the part of the deal. 
And it's one of those conspiracy theory things about the Afghanistan pipe, oil pipeline. Uh, the, the general consensus was was that um, uh, in order to move oil out, uh, uh, you know, of that area, they were going to build a pipeline through Afghanistan that would um, uh, go around the Russians in order to provide oil for, um, I suppose, the rest of Europe or something. Um, the and and so the conspiracy theory has always been that we went into Afghanistan in order to um, create this oil pipeline. And that's why Bush actually went in to get his oil buddies. Now, <coughs> there's two pipelines that this myth stems from. The main one, okay, is this Unicall pipeline that was proposed back in, like, 1995. And um, the idea was that uh, Turkmenistan which is um, to the northwest of Afghanistan, is a very um, high in natural gas, not oil. And that uh, Pakistan, being a developing nation, especially back in 1995, when before all this crazy terrorist shit happened, um, was in need of that sort of fuel. And that they would run the pipeline from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan to Pakistan. Now, first of all, that's not to Europe, okay? That is to Pakistan. And the amount of money that they're talking about at the time was about $5 billion to build this pipeline from the two points. And, uh, you know, the plan was talked about and everything, but eventually Unicall actually said, no, we're not going to even do this because this is stupid. Um, we're never going to be able to get it, like, you know, built and, and, and figured out and everything because Afghanistan is too crazy right now, etc. So the um, it, it, the pipeline plans still exist. Uh, it's actually a consortium of Asian uh, developers now that are trying to get it to happen. However, uh, one of the biggest problems with even doing it is the fact that liquefied natural gas is in huge supply. It's an oversupply around the world, and it's basically a very good way of transporting natural gas, and that a pipeline to move natural gas doesn't seem like it's going to be very profitable for anybody involved. Also, after 15 years, even though Turkmenistan has an enormous amount of natural gas reserves, um, the you know when you go through 15 years of natural resources, uh, the quantity and availability to make some of these things viable economically over the long term diminishes because it's taken so long for it to happen, and it will only take it so much longer for it to happen once it's been built, and then you might not end, actually end up making the kind of money that you thought you were going to make based on the market. You know, all of the natural gas that was found in North America recently kind of puts a bigger damper on it as well. But at the end of the day, you're talking about supplying natural gas to Pakistan alone, which is not a rich nation, is not going to hand out billions of dollars for natural gas, and ultimately, you're not really going to make a lot of money on this pipeline, even if you build it. So that's why the American interests got out of it. Okay, so there is no pipeline. The pipeline's never been built. It hasn't been started. It doesn't exist. It's basically just being talked about. There is another pipeline that um, doesn't even go through Afghanistan. It kind of comes out of the, um, uh, Turkey, and it goes up and around over to Europe. And that pipeline is um, also one where they discuss trying to get around uh, the Russian monopoly on the pipelines that kind of go to Europe. That one's also been canceled. Uh, that was an oil pipeline, not a natural gas pipeline, and that project has completely been um, shut down at this time. 
Uh, one of the reasons is, again, is that the reserves um, of the oil and things that are over there are in question. Uh, Russia is known to basically be at peak capacity um, and diminishing capacity. Uh, they don't talk about it, and um, the world kind of knows about it, and the Russians have been trying to like clamp down on a lot of their... Um, their allies and friends over the years with, with their oil and, and things because uh, they can't waste it anymore because the demand from Europe continues to rise and Russia wants to be the country that delivers it to them. But Russia has sort of reached, uh, you know, its a maximum availability of its own resources in order to provide it without spending, you know, great deals of money trying to pull out extra oil from their own wells. And this is one of the reasons why the Russians are trying to drill in the Arctic, which is also one of the reasons, you know, where there's big debates about um, them putting a flag at the bottom of the ocean to say, this is Russian, you know, the North Pole is Russian, and all this sort of stuff, because there's a lot of oil up there, and the Russians want to claim it. They're saying, this is part of greater Russia. If you look at the map, this is where the continental plate is, and Russia's, this is ours, and the rest of the international community is like, no, fuck you, that's not true, you're not getting the free oil for your own country. But Russia is trying to claim that stuff, as well as uh, some natural gas that's up there, you know, bubbling in the sea, because um, that is, you know, what they need in order to maintain themselves being, you know, relevant, essentially, as a country. But in terms of building a new pipeline... In that area, there's really nothing over there. Again, Turkmenistan is basically it. It is a natural gas wonder. It, it has tons of money. But it is, um, <coughs> you know, again, it's easier just to ship it. You know, you put it on big boats, just like you do with oil. You know, there's no pipeline going from Saudi Arabia to the United States. Uh, you put it on boats. You just liquefy natural gas, and you put it on boats, and you move it around that way, and that's going to work fine. And no one's going to really build a pipeline. So the oil pipeline, bullshit. Uh, some people have said, well, the reason we were over in Afghanistan is because of the lithium deposits that they have over there, which they just discovered, like, after we had already been there. Um, unless you want to believe that somehow they went over there ahead of time, knew about it, started a war over lithium. Nonsense. Uh, no one's even managed to, like, scrape any of that stuff out yet after all this time. You know, they're just still talking about mineral rights and all this stuff. And again, I think those are all going to China at this point. I don't even think any, you know, U.S. company's interested in it. So... Um, uh, you know, like I say, sometimes an apple's just an apple. You know, basically, um, uh, I think George Bush, as president, had some ideas in his head. Uh, being um, a guy who uh, felt that the world would be a better place uh, if we had gotten rid of um, the Afghanistan, you know, the the Taliban in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, he wanted to get Osama bin Laden, and he also wanted to get rid of Saddam Hussein uh, because he wanted, you know, people say it's because of the oil, etc. Um, you can believe what you want, but I think it was less that and more just ideology. I believe that George Bush thought that if he could introduce democracy into that country, that it would spread throughout um, the Middle East and create a, uh, a new paradigm there that would um, free the people from the, the kings and, the, and the, the military juntas and things that are going on there um, in all of the countries that exist. 
Now, is that the reason why we've suddenly had all of these uh, rebellions and everything over there? No, I don't think so. But, uh, you know, you could say, I would not sit there and say, well, the reason that they're, you know, having the riots in Egypt and everything is because George Bush was right. I totally don't agree that that's what happened. Um, I think that, you know, there's been more of a freedom of information in a lot of these countries, and, and that's really what's kind of driven it forward. But I think that George Bush thought that he could do it militarily, was probably wrong, um, but you know, ultimately, uh, you know, he, he did stop or help to stop or or help to curb or whatever you want to say. Two regimes that were uh, ultimately out for um, the destruction of the United States. I mean, there's no doubt that the Taliban at the time, with Al Qaeda and everything, was out to destroy the United States. Um, and Saddam Hussein certainly wasn't our friend. And um, you know, for a guy who apparently never had any chemical weapons and didn't have anything that you know that we ended up finding in this country, if you go back and look at history, you have to kind of sit there and wonder to yourself, then why didn't he just let the fucking inspectors in? You know, we're sitting there saying, "Look, man, we're going to bomb you." You know, why don't you just let the inspectors in your country and inspect it? If you've got nothing, just let them do it. You know, but it's like one of these weird. Who knows with that guy, and he ended up losing, you know, his life over it, and blowed his whole country up and everything because he was an idiot, essentially. Um, anyway, I'm not justifying the reasons for war. All I'm trying to say is, is that a lot of times people say, um, you know, the reason we did X is because of Y, and here's the reasons. And if you really get down and dirty, and you look at the facts that people are saying, the facts don't hold up to the truth, and the truth is sometimes just as simple as. Uh, some people that are in power make decisions based on how they feel at the moment. And it isn't always due to economic reasons, you know. Not to say that George Bush didn't have some economic reasons for doing it, you know. I'm sure that whole Halliburton thing with Dick Cheney probably, you know, Dick probably looked really good for Dick Cheney supplying all that to the war effort, you know, to, to build up Halliburton as a bigger company and all that kind of stuff, but... Um, I actually do have a sort of mental difference between George Bush and Dick Cheney in my head. I think that George Bush ultimately meant well, though his methods were questionable. Um, Dick Cheney, on the other hand, to me, seemed like a guy who was basically, um, seems like a guy who was basically trying to profit from his actions, uh, you know, as best he could for his friends and his buddies and stuff, you know. And, you know, at the very end of the Bush presidency, I still sort of think that because the Scooter Libby thing, um, you know, where uh, Dick Cheney really wanted George Bush to give a presidential pardon to Scooter Libby. And George Bush said, you know, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, he basically said, no, Dick, you're wrong. You know, this guy uh, made me look bad, made you look bad. And, 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 uh, you know, maybe he did it for you. But um, he's not getting a presidential pardon, and he never pardoned him. And that kind of shows you the sort of internal disagreements between the two, the two people had. You know, one of the interesting things was is that uh, the Republican Party had thought that they really wanted Dick Cheney to be president, and he couldn't be because he had a bad heart. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing, you know, with John McCain being so old and stuff. You know, people are like, you're too old, you're going to die. And Dick Cheney had a bad heart, and people were like, we're not going to have you be president because you're just going to die. And, uh, you know, he didn't have that sort of charisma and everything. And so, you know, George Bush, they put into power, and George Bush, you know, they made movies about this kind of thing and stuff, you know. He really wasn't the right guy to be president, et cetera, because he didn't really know the job, he didn't know what he was doing, et cetera. I mean, you can look at it any way you want to look at it. But 
Um, you know, Dick Cheney was the guy that, um, you know, was calling the shots in the Republican Party, etc. And so they felt that, you know, he had a lot of power and a lot of sway. And George Bush basically let him do it because that's what everybody told him would be the best idea, you know, for, to do. You know, let's go ahead and do this, etc. And that's where it led them. But I think at the end of the war, or, you know, the end of that whole presidency, you know, George Bush, um, too little too late, started to realize that... Um, you know, it didn't really go the way that uh, would have been best, and poor leadership, everything like that. But anyway, that's just some things, some food for thought. I don't really want to get all political. You know, I'm just telling you what I've heard and everything. I know people are going to come back and respond and probably get some more conspiracy theories about why we're in Afghanistan and all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, basically, I just want to give you stuff to chew on to have you think about things a little bit more um, rationally. You know, do yourself a favor and don't just accept things blindly. Do some research. Look up these things. You know, when somebody tells you that there's a pipeline in Afghanistan, just don't just accept that there's a pipeline in Afghanistan. Go on the web, man. Look it up on Wikipedia. Look at all the different things that are going on there. I'm not saying these are all great resources in and of themselves, you know, but you can find enough information out there that you can at least have an informed decision and come up with the right sort of knowledge in your head to sit there and say what's most likely going on and what's most likely happening and that's all i'm trying to do i'm just trying to challenge you to try to take it forward and go up a notch with it so that's it um i know i haven't done one of these in a while next one will be probably an interview or two i know javier wants to come on again and uh, talk about what's been happening in his life uh which has changed so i'll probably do one of those soon um and i'm also going to be interviewing all of the guys from spill one at a time uh and um those are going to happen as well Again, I just have to get things more straight with my schedule, etc. Um, so these things will still be slow getting out. Um, but I think once the VGN thing sort of shifts in uh, July, we'll probably see an occasional O-Blast, maybe once a month on a Sunday rather than a gaming show, and maybe more in the interview type of thing, or like these, you know, that sort of thing. Now, if you want to write into the show, uh, you can write to K-B-A-I-R-D, that's K-Baird, at VGN.us, and I'll read your email on the show. And if you have a, you know, if you want to be a guest, you could write in and say I want to be a guest, etc. And we could try and work it out. And or if you have some questions or you just want to talk about a subject or you want me to talk about a subject, you know, just write in and uh, I'll talk about it or we'll get you on and you could talk about it or I'll just read what you had to say in the email and we'll kind of do it from there. So that's it. Sports, if you're listening live, it's going to be at 10 p.m. I believe Jedi and Larry are both going to show up for that. I don't know. I think it's going to be a short one. There wasn't any trips to the roller derby this week or anything exciting like that. You know, it's mostly just Indians talk, so, you know, if you want to miss it, feel free. Uh, But that's it. Thanks for listening, live listeners. You guys rock, and uh, good night, folks. Take it easy. Videogamenews.com for more information. Later.